Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Catherine Sellingman. She is the winner of the Penn Bellwether Prize for Socially Engaged Fiction. Her new novel is At the Edge of the Hate, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Catherine, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. Absolutely. It's an honor to have you here. And first, Catherine, let me open by stating that this book, At the Edge of the Hate, is magnificent. It is early yet, but I can already tell you that it will be on my list of best novels of 2021. Listeners, it sucked me in from the beginning. It is an extremely well-written book with an unforgettable protagonist. And what more can you ask for from a quality work of literature? Catherine, let me first just ask you about these kids, these young men and women who are living in Golden Gate Park on the fringes of the hate in San Francisco. Can you just tell our listeners, many of who are in San Francisco, but many of whom are here in North Carolina, what is going on there where Hate Street dead ends into Golden Gate Park? Well, the, this district called Hate ashbury a lot of people know about it uh, from its history of being the center of the summer of love and the hippie movement and the time when all of these young people flocked to the neighborhood and to hear music concerts and to protest a war. Through the years, a lot has changed in the neighborhood. It's gotten a lot more expensive. There's a huge affordability problem. And the kids have kept coming. So they filter through and they're young people who are drifters and seekers and often just displaced from families. They've been kicked out, they have nowhere to go. And they come to the hate sort of expecting that it would be the way it was and find that, it, that it's not, although there is this legacy of tolerance, but a lot of them end up living in the park. Right. Thank you so much, uh, Catherine. And I want to elaborate on this question just a little. Many of the listeners of this program know that I lived in San Francisco for a long time. I moved out right before Twitter moved into their offices on Market Street, uh, though I've been back since. And I visited my former neighbor, also named Jason, in their offices. How have the tech companies moving in changed the economic landscape of San Francisco, not only in the hate, but also in other neighborhoods? Well, it's become so much more difficult to find a place where you can live. The, the price, the average price of an, of an apartment, a one and two bedroom apartment in San Francisco is the highest in the nation. It rivals New York. And in some neighborhoods, it's quite a bit higher. And so it's pushed a lot of people out, people who are um, teachers, musicians, artists, people who work in neighborhood stores. And the people who have come in aren't, it's not a sense of them being evil or the city can't stand having tech people. As a matter of fact, they've, they've added to the economic viability of the city. So it's kind of a, it's, it's a two-sided thing. And in my neighborhood, where you always had a lot of old hippies and musicians and just people, all different kinds of people, you do find the pre-pandemic, the big double-decker dark 
buses with tinted windows pulling up and people filing in. And we, we just never had that before. So it's changed the entire city and this neighborhood definitely. Yeah. What neighborhood are you in, Catherine? And I'm in, in Haight-Ashbury. Oh, great. Okay. I've lived, yeah. And I've, I've lived and worked here for more than 25 years. So lucky you. Thank you so much, Catherine. Um, now that we have set up kind of the environment surrounding the novel, would you mind taking a few moments to set up the story you were telling in At the Edge of the Hate? The book centers on a young woman named Maddie who flees her life in Los Angeles, which is, it's a very chaotic life of living with foster parents and feeling like nobody is cares what she's thinks or where she goes. And she, she's very unseen there. And she ages out, she turns 18 and she moves to San Francisco, like, like a lot of kids do. And once she's there, she finds a group of kids who also live in the park and alternate staying in a local shelter. And they become a sort of family to her. And she is living there and trying to survive and feeling like she knows how to survive until she sees, comes across the scene of a murder. And that changes everything. Thank you, Catherine. Um, as we sit here in early 2021, I have people who live in my neighborhood in Raleigh, North Carolina, highly respected members of the community here who do not trust the police enough to call them, even when something is very, very wrong and people might be in danger. Can you talk about the lack of trust between communities, housed and unhoused communities, and the police and the complexities of choosing whether or not to report a crime when this mistrust is so pronounced? Well, I think that's um, happening more and more um, and in this city and, and everywhere. But particularly, you know, in, and, and this is, I'm not a, you know, a social worker or, and I'm not an expert in public health, but from living in this neighborhood and I've done volunteer work at a shelter and just spoken to so many people. And it seems to me that there's just this sense of, distrust and so much of the violence is is focused on the people who are on the street or in the park so you know it's very very uncommon to have any kind of violent street crime here i mean i've i've my kids are in their 20s they were born in this neighborhood raised in this neighborhood and none of us have really you know none of us have had any you know experienced any kind of violent street crime but if you talk to the kids that live here, they're constantly getting robbed and things are happening. So yeah, they, they and they're understandably feel that they don't want, they get hassled by the police. But I, I'll also say that in, in this neighborhood, they've had for quite a while a, a police team, well, one person in particular and somebody who works with him, who function more as social workers and do get to know the kids and do try to hook them up with services. But that said, when something happens and the police arrive, it's, you know, there is, there is tension. And there's often a need for some kind of intervention because things do happen. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Catherine. 
I want to go back for a moment to the scene on Hate Street and ask you next about the businesses on Hate Street, many of whom are catering to tourists who are there to see the signs for Hate Ashbury or to see where Jerry Garcia lived. Uh, but some of these businesses are very much catering to locals, uh, specifically a couple that come to mind are Amoeba Music and The Booksmith, both of which I believe you are referencing in this novel, uh, but who you never call out. Uh Um, What is the relationship of these businesses with these unhoused kids living on the street and in the park? Are they as friendly as you make them out to me? Well, I think that there are some businesses that have that are um, really affected by what goes on in the street. And if you're trying to run a business, whether it's, you know, we, we don't have chain stores in the neighborhood. Mm. Um, we might have one or two that, that, you know, have other stores somewhere, but the mm. neighborhood has been very unfriendly to chain stores. So, but, you know, say you're trying to, you're selling sneakers and people are camping in front of your door and you can't open your door. So, you know, there's there's that sense that, you know, there's it's difficult to run a business here. Um, but they're also, by and large, the businesses have been incredibly uh, generous and trying to help solve the issues. I mean, it varies. And, and every business has a different sort of how, how many how many resources they can devote to this. I, I totally understand both sides. But I do want to just talk for a minute about the booksmith, which has been here a long time. It was, it's maybe owned by the same people, I'm not sure, for 15 years, 20 years, and has done, first did a lot to turn the bookstore into sort of a community meeting place, sort of bring in people and have different kinds of events. They once had a, had a, circus show in there. I mean, they're just everything that happens to the neighborhood, they would try to bring bring it in. And the the owner of it is not only the head of the Merchants Association or, or one of the heads of the Merchants Association, but has become extremely um, active in trying to do something to help the homeless population to the extent that she she's quite a remarkable person. Both her bookstore is wonderful, but she has spent so many days volunteering downtown in a, in a neighborhood that desperately needs help to try to get housing for people who really were in not good shape, who needed to be moved into hotel rooms. In, they were in huge tent encampments in mm-hmm. the center part of our city. And so she was just doing that every day while her bookstore was basically closed and only open for for uh, pickups, she was just doing this on her own, you know, as a volunteer. So she's just become tremendously involved in this issue. Outstanding. Good for her. Thank you so much, Catherine. Listeners, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Catherine Seligman. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. 
Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Catherine Seligman, author of At the Edge of the Hate, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Catherine, I would like for you to tell our listeners for a moment about the characters of Shane's parents in your novel. Shane, of course, is a kid who our protagonist, Maddie, stumbles upon after he has been killed or as he is in the act of dying. How do Shane's parents enter the story and what are they doing? They first find out that their son has traveled across well, I know he's traveled across the country because he has been calling them mm. and communicating with them every once in a while. And they're desperate to know where he is and what his life is like until one day they get that call from the from San Francisco saying that their child has been a victim of a homicide. Mm. And they are stunned and they can't believe it. He's has had some issues in school growing up, but this was a kid who had parents who maybe didn't understand it, but who adored him and were so upset that he had disappeared from their lives. Um, And certainly they didn't, you know, they didn't understand him. There was a lot going on, but he ended up here and then they travel to San Francisco to try to find out what happened. And they press Maddie to tell them what happened. They want her to be sort of the seer in this, to let them understand how their child could have ended up like this. And she is very resentful about it. She she feels drawn to them in some way because she's so alienated from her own family, mm-hmm. from her birth family, but she also doesn't want any part of it and they don't understand that. Right. Thank you, Catherine. And do you feel like Shane's parents are realizing that they should have intervened in Shane's life too late and are now trying to intervene in Maddie's and help her um, help to make her um, well or lead her on a different path to make themselves feel better? Are they grasping at straws here? I think it's it's some of all of that, that they desperately want to help her, but in a way they feel like that will alleviate their guilt and their loss. If they help her, they feel like it, it would sort of make them feel better. And she's, she senses that and really draws back from them. And they move sort of towards a confrontation on, on whether or not she's going to let them guide her in a new direction. Absolutely. Thank you, Catherine. You alluded to this a little bit earlier before the break when we were um, speaking of the owner of the booksmith. I'm hoping that you can talk about the social workers that work with these uh, unhoused kids. There are resources available to help with the process of reintegration into society if a person chooses to take advantage of this avenue. Is this correct? Well, it's a that's that. There, there's not enough help. There, there are people working to help them, but it's so complicated. And that's something I really learned while I was doing the research for the book. Um, 
the the novel really was based on my seeing uh, coming across the scene of a murder in Golden Gate Park mm -hmm. and not being able to get that out of my mind. Mm -hmm. The murderer was a man in his 60s and he killed a 25-year-old kid. And because there were no witnesses, they let him go. And I just started to think about, well, what if? What if this were my child? And I so I talked, I've talked to a number of people who work with the kids and the homeless population here in the hate. And I think um, a number of them have also experienced homelessness and have been through a lot of what these kids have been through. And indeed in the book, there is a character who tries to help Maddie and she is formerly homeless. Hmm. And so I think that that's a really, a, a they try to go into the park to help the kids where they are instead of expecting them to come in and go to a program. But it's, it's very complicated. And I, I think that's one, it, as I said, that's one of the important things I learned was that there's not one fix for, for everyone. Every kid has an, a constellation of issues surrounding him that need to be addressed, him or her. Absolutely. Thank you, Catherine. Can you tell us a little bit more about the depth and breadth of research that you did uh, when you were preparing to write this novel? Well, as, as I said, I had lived in the neighborhood for a long time, and I had written also a number of stories about the neighborhood. And I've also written about homelessness and just been a reporter in San Francisco. And abroad as well. So I, when I found this story, I went to the court and I looked up everything I could look up and began talking to police and began talking to kids on the street and began talking to people who were working with them. So I did it, a lot of research and decided to do it as a novel because what I really wanted to write about was that idea of how could th something like this happen? How can you pass someone on the street every day who lives right down the block from you, but happens to live outside, who has an entire story as we all do and know so little about them. So, I mean, that's that's what inspired me. And that's, that's really why I took it as fiction. And the characters are completely fiction. Although I did talk to a number of people and a couple of them in, in great depth and was checking things with them. And is this plausible? And is that plausible? And that sort of thing. Although I didn't, I didn't use any of their stories. Thank you, Catherine. Um, the last time I visited San Francisco, I was um, coming to help a friend move from uh, Pacific Heights to the sunset. Um, and one thing that there was a prevalence of uh, in the Tenderloin and in Soma that there wasn't so much when I was living in the city were these um, kind of streets and sidewalks full of tents that just popped up um, where there were people living outside in tents. And there is a scene in this novel um, where trash collectors drive down the road and then just stop and start tearing the tents and throwing them away and all of the people's possessions. Is this something that is really happening? It has happened, yes, and it has happened quite a bit where people will form encampments 
and there'll be there are a few streets where there would be tent after tent after tent and the after a lot of debate over what should be done the city finally decided that people would be told you know you need to move your things and you need to move and if you don't then we will be cleaning the sidewalk so mm -hmm. that meant that was a sort of code for we'll take your stuff um and that has happened in certain neighborhoods pre-pandemic -pre during the pandemic many more people have been forced onto the street and have we've had a lot of tent encampments and you know there's been a lot of dis discussion about that mm -hmm. but before that happened yes we've we've that has happened thank you Catherine. what a complicated um issue to kind of grapple with Catherine, I could talk about this novel all day long, literally. Our time here, unfortunately, is limited, but I do want to ask you a final question about Maddie. I don't know why, but I was surprised to find out that she was a high school graduate, that she was um, a smart, intelligent young woman. She had the tools she needed to make a life for herself, but she didn't understand what happened to her mother. Um, her mother had a nervous breakdown and just sort of forgot about her daughter. How old was Maddie when this happened? And how can something like this happening to your parent or to your caregiver shock you into questioning the fundamental aspects of life and existence? How does a young person shake themselves out of this type of situation? You know, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that um, often things will will happen that um aren't sort of you know it wasn't as if she was being you know beaten brutally every day yet her father left when she was young when she was in third grade her mother seemed to have a psychotic depression that just left her that left her hospitalized so maddie's torn from her family and is living with a extremely indifferent foster family. So she did have that early experience of love and she was really bright, but she also had a sense of being utterly alone. And, but, you know, by the time she was in third grade. So I think it was so traumatic to her to have her mother disappear, to be torn out of that house and put into a strange place where nobody cared what she did, that she really was, she was unmoored. And I think it was a, a kind of trauma. And I think often the the kind of trauma that kids face is, is something like that. It can also, of course, be something much more extreme, you know, involving substance abuse. And, you know, just there there's so many different reasons. But I think often it's something that's not, you know, wildly dramatic. I would hear stories. I, I also heard stories that were wildly dramatic. Um, and as I said, I wouldn't, you know, I didn't want to take anyone's story. Um, so I think they're the, the reasons are complex, but I do think that if a child is ripped out of a family like that, it's, you know, that's a, that's a trauma. It is. Uh, thank you so much. And I'm, I won't go into spoiler territory, but, um, thank goodness for libraries. I will say that, um, 
Catherine, thank you for writing this beautiful novel. I assure you that if you stay tuned uh, into Quill Ridge Books on our website and social media, that you will hear us talking about this book many more times for the rest of 2021 and beyond. Listeners, I've been speaking with Catherine Seligman, author of At the Edge of the Hate, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Once again, I would like to thank Catherine Seligman for joining me. Copies of At the Edge of the Hate can be ordered from www.quillridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies and this has been Booking.